And I yeah. think that the imagination of the kingdom of heaven, the imagination of God is one of collective liberation, meaning like all of us have a part in this. It's just, we have different parts depending on our identities, but that doesn't mean that only the wokest of the woke will get into woke heaven. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock. Re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance. Break down toxic theology and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful, iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special Friday episode drop of Jonah and the Peacock. Um, I'm super pumped because this week you get not one, but two stellar episodes, uh, great conversations with people that um, really inspired my imagination and my hope for the church and the world and my faith. Um, we were set back last week by production delays, and so we thought we would uh, bust out a second episode this week to get everybody their fill of, of these deep conversations. And you'll notice that um, this one, this episode, was actually recorded quite a while ago. I mentioned Tyler's book, and I talk about it about to come out in April 2021. Um, it is now January 2022, so his book has been released, and I really recommend you check it out. Now you don't even have to wait wait uh, to try and pre-order. You can just go ahead and snatch it. Um, it's called Staying Awake, the Gospel for Changemakers. And he wrote it as a primer of sorts for, uh, for Christians who are radical, who are justice-oriented, who are seeking to deepen their spirituality in a Jesus-centric way um, in a world where they intend to apply their faith to challenge structures of evil. And so it really resonated with me. It resonated with my community, Zao MKE Church. We had a book study of it, and uh, it was just really, it was um, really profound what came up for people who were new to their faith, newly returning to their faith, or veterans of their own faith journey, um, all got different things out of it. So I highly recommend that you check out his book, and, and there's a little bit of conversation about that today, but um, mostly we get into a, kind of a deep dive on Tyler's identity as a Chinese American, and what that has meant to him trying to envision his own leadership in the church. And he talks about how anti-Asian sentiment in pop culture in the United States, along with kind of this strange uh, proximity to whiteness that is uh, that both affords privileges but also demands a lot of costs, um, including costs to solidarity and costs um, to integrity. That, that all combines to really sideline a lot of uh, Asian Americans um, in Tyler's experience. And so he talks about how that shaped his own imagination um, for what he was capable of and called to in the church. Um, but 
as an outsider, I can tell you, I see Tyler um, busting down all kinds of of doors and walls and any kind of barrier um, around all kinds of marginalized identities in the work that he's doing out in the world at New City Church in Minneapolis. And uh, so I'm just really excited for you all to hear his experience and this conversation and and see what it brings up for you. Um, see how... Uh, his experience can um, can guide you about your own faith and also help open you up to the experiences of other other folks who may have been overlooked. Um, and that's why we've called this Tyler and the Overlooked Prophets, because those folks from the margins who are overlooked have prophetic truth uh, to share. And Tyler has been really bold and powerful in sharing his. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, uh, Tyler. Thank you so much for being here with me today on Jonah and the Peacock. Um, everybody, Tyler Ho Yin Sit is the pastor and church planter of New City Church in Minneapolis. Um, started just a little bit before my own church plant um, with Cameron here in Milwaukee, Zao MKE Church. And we've looked to New City um, a lot as an inspiring, pioneering community, and Tyler in particular as a leader. Um, Tyler is also a collaborator with me on the Liberation Project, and you have a book coming out in April 2021, um, and I'm so excited to hear about that. It's called Staying Awake. Is that right? Yes. Staying Awake, the Gospel for Changemakers. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and why yeah, so you wrote staying- it? Sure. So Staying Awake, the Gospel for Changemakers is a practical exploration of Christianity for people who want to show up for justice and stay in the movement. Uh, Basically, when people at New City Church were like, wow, I'm really excited about the way that you're approaching Christianity, love the whole liberation thing, who should I be reading? I looked at my bookshelf and all of the options were either seminary texts or like accessible texts written by white guys. So I just like really, really needed a primer to be able to hand people who were uh, either reigniting their interest in Christianity or encountering Christianity for the first time. And, uh, and so I didn't find it quite in the way that I wanted it. And so I just talked to the community and we put one together ourselves. That's amazing. I am so excited for this book to come out because I too have had that problem of like wanting to introduce people to, to a movement and to a space that they can kind of meditate on and chew on and realizing that like we have, I mean, and this is very queer and very Christian as well, like that, that it's been oral storytelling and through Mm -hmm. networks of relationships. And also Mm -hmm. like the, the way that certain voices have been excluded from the defining texts and sort of the, the catechesis of, of our Christian development is, uh, is such a gap and, and causes such harm that we have to look to folks who, who don't get us and kind of write ourselves in to the text. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, the more I, you know, read through the Bible with the hermeneutic of my community in mind, the more I realize that the Bible is, uh, mostly queer, <laughs> you know, like, Agreed. like most of the Bible so is, gay. is somehow like bending or, or flexing outside of an established norm, an established 
binary an established like social way of doing things and I just um it's just striking to me that it's been so appropriated by the empire for the purposes of of control and domination yeah so tell us more about um your community like when you say my community I'm I'm hearing New City Church but also probably many other many other things that that comprise your community and identities obviously queerness is a factor but what are some of the identities that um that shape you and your communities of faith sure so um I consider myself uh, accountable to and in solidarity with New City Church. So that's a church that is, um, gosh, probably on any given Sunday, probably half queer LGBTQ plus. Um, uh, the racial demographics of New City Church, at least <laughs> when I could look around the room and count, the racial demographics of New City Church match the racial demographics of the city of Minneapolis almost to the percentage point in terms wow. of uh, Black, Latinx, Asian, and white folks. And 40% uh, of New City Church doesn't actively identify as Christian. So it's either folks who were majorly burned out by the church but still have some curiosities around it, um, or folks who are encountering this for the very first time. So I think a lot of my preaching voice and a lot of my biblical hermeneutic always had kind of the question in mind of like, why does this matter to my community at, at New City Church? But like you said, um, positionality really matters when you're reading the Bible and understanding the many identities that you bring into the, your reading lens is so huge. And I, um, we've already talked about queerness, but I think that um, in terms of being Chinese American, like a theme that I find myself very, uh, <laughs> it's so obvious to me and it sticks out so much to me. And then I hear white folks like totally gloss over um, the, all of the passages that have to do with belonging. And like that includes like initiation rights or exclusion rights, like who gets to be in and who gets to be out. And I think this is largely based off of this Asian American paradox of um, being allowed certain privileges, certain proxy to whiteness, um, while also being considered a perpetual outsider, a perpetual foreigner. So anytime the Bible looks at um, how you relate to strangers, I think is like really especially interesting to me because uh, the Asian American experience is to perpetually be like uh, uh, born in a land and be a foreigner to that land at the, at, considered a foreigner to that land at the same time. Um, the other day I was just uh, reading up on, there's a lot of certainly people in Asia, uh, but also Asian Americans who are getting eyelid surgery. Have you heard about this? Oh, it's wow, like, I have not. So like there, uh, there's a certain way that Asian eyelids look <laughs> that is like sure. uh, 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 where there typically isn't a second crease in it, they call yeah. it. And people are getting surgery to insert that second crease to make their quote unquote eyes look more awake, but really oh it's to look more Western. And yeah. like, I just think that in, in conversation with uh, texts like Paul's discourse on circumcision, Mm. is very interesting to me because all of these are questions of like who gets to actually be considered beloved and who gets to be in our social circles and what needs to happen to their bodies in order for that to be considered 
like pardonable and uh, acceptable. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I think that it, it brings up for me the the conversation about, um, and this this is a problem that we've had in um, uh, like U.S. American conversations about race and racism is what demands are explicit and what are implicit. Like, right. like white folks aren't, to my knowledge, running around telling folks to have eyelid surgery. Right. But in an implicit way, white folks are running around telling people to have eyelid surgery. Uh, right? <laughs> right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like people are getting eyelid surgery because the folks who have these eyelids get offered, get accepted into different spaces than folks who don't. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I, I, I wonder too, you know, there's the, there are these kind of physical demands we have for assimilation to mm -hmm. dominant spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there are, there are other communicative demands, code switching, mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of mm -hmm. cultural demands. What have you experienced, um, are uh, your experience as a Chinese American in mm -hmm. church spaces? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there are demands that are made of you relative to your reading of scripture around, um, assimilating whiteness into your, into your reading of scripture or your, um, leadership of Christian space, spaces or your, your belief in God? Absolutely. Oh yeah. <laughs> All the time. Uh, because I grew up in, uh, a predominantly white, uh, church community who loved me very much, but just didn't have anyone who looked like me around. So anytime the voice of God was being read into the space, it was with white voice. And, um, this compounded on media that is so anti-Asian, <laughs> like Western media is so anti-Asian and, um, and these kind of tropes of, of who Asians are allowed to be really shaped my understanding of ministry. And I think that um, I have always been passionate about ministry and I've always kind of like mystically sensed a presence of God in my life. And I think that I had a harder time coming to terms with leadership positions because I just never saw Asians in <laughs> the role of, of leadership and especially around ministry leadership. So, um, you know, like there's these tropes of Asian Americans in media of the Asian is the research assistant. The Asian is like the cool sidekick who has mm -hmm. like a, f a flare of purple hair <laughs> or, you know, like the Asian is like the shopkeeper, but there's never really a main character. In, and in like any of the shows that I grew up with it, uh, growing up in Minnesota, at least. And I just really uh, think that shaped my imagination of how far I can succeed or how well I can lead. And of course, like if you don't see yourself into leadership and you're in ministry, then that also speaks to how authoritatively you can approach the Bible. So like being able to approach, I don't know, after doing a lot of internalized anti-racism work and decolonizing work, I realize that I'm able to approach the Bible with my experience and that is as valid of a hermeneutic as any other body approaching the Bible in, in their experience. It's just that some bodies happen to have like generations of biblical scholarship to back up their <laughs> the things that are obvious sure. to them <laughs> and not as obvious to me. So I'm, I'm, um, I would also say that I've um, been very indebted to 
two Asian American biblical scholars who are starting to like uncover things for me and uh, to show that there truly are like, um, how do I say it? The Bible is an intercultural text. Like it, in order for us to be able to empathize with the Bible meaningfully, we need to be able to understand it as if we were approaching a completely new culture for all of its riches and all of its uh, 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 traps. <laughs> so uh, like, I, I really appreciate Asian American scholars who have been able to do that for me. Um, yeah, and I guess I, the last thing I would say is, uh, so I identify as Chinese American. My dad is from Hong Kong and my mom is a white woman from Minnetonka, Minnesota. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I think like I'm also very attuned to, um, you know, like in the book, when in the, the book of Acts is describing the church and it's talking about people coming from all over the place. Like I experientially know that that is the will of God. Like the Pentecost is a vision of the will of God because like in my home, I got like a mini glimpse of that by just seeing two cultures come mm. together in ways that allowed for really the wounds of both of those cultures to be healed by the, the blessings of the, the other. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have a thousand questions because all of that is so rich. And I, um, so I hear you naming kind of, um, intercultural space and, uh, intercultural multiracial family as, as kind of a, a, a vantage point of the kingdom. Um, and I also hear, I, I want to go back briefly to leadership because when you were talking mm. about, leadership and seeing or not seeing uh, other Asian Americans in leadership in the church, one of the things that it, it reminded me of is that in our in our shared denomination, the United Methodist Church, and maybe this is my own context, I'm in Wisconsin, um, and I've also served in Northern Illinois in the Chicago area, but like, I, I see a lot more recent immigrants mm -hmm. pastoring immigrant congregations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I don't see as many Asian Americans who were born in the United States leading period. Um, right. and, and one of the things that it has always kind of reminded me of, although again, this is that difference between spoken and unspoken. No one would say this, but, um, <clears throat> it reminds me of the formerly spoken restrictions on women in the church um, around, well, women can teach other women and children, but never men. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, mm -hmm. you know, if there are still some unspoken practices around, um, white supremacy narratives of superiority and who is allowed to lead and whom they are allowed to lead. And I think that oh, like the yeah. church doesn't within that racial superiority structure, which is sinful and evil, but so poorly and inconsistently confronted in our church, there's no place to put a Chinese American church planter pastor right. <laughs> born in Minnesota, um, in a, in a multicultural multiracial home, because who do you have the authority to lead over? Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I just wonder how yeah, very insightful. Hmm. even our teachings about, you know, whether women can speak in the church, in, in church, 
bleed the misogyny of that and the kind of hierarchy of authority there mm-hmm. leads into other systems of oppression to say who okay. has the authority to lead and whom do they have the authority to lead. Mm-hmm. Do you feel yeah. like your leadership is ever restricted to certain communities and not others? It certainly informs my drive to be a church planter. Uh, I, I think that, and I would wonder if this would be a similar experience to you with Zhao, but I feel like marginalized people are primed to be church planters because we've already had to operate in a world that wasn't built for us. Absolutely. And so like we already have an imagination of like, okay, so we can't count on, I can't count on uh, 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 my denomination to create <laughs> like a community where people like me flourish because there aren't any leaders like me who imagine it. So it's like, okay, so this is kind of my responsibility. And of course, like that's where I, I've had really significant allyship from within my denomination of people saying, yes, we do need you to, to be creating this, but there is still kind of like a, a, a mantle of like, uh, it's the the marginalized person's imagination that that will create the new, next thing or the new thing, and I think that that's what New City Churches certainly not just from my own imagination, but from my whole team, which is mostly queer people of color. And yeah, I wonder if, if you find that in, with Zhao as well. Like the imagination for being able to create Zhao came from your marginalization. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know. There is no structure within the church that recognizes me as my whole self, even if it's trying, because absolutely, I mean, like here in Wisconsin and for sure in Northern Illinois, there were so many people who had my back and were creating the spaces for me to step up into leadership, but it, it, it's, it's countercultural, it's against the history and legacy of the system, and so it's just very difficult to move. But even at that same time, you know, I, I joke about this a lot, actually, that, um, when I, I was a community organizer working primarily with churches before I discerned my call to leave, leave mm-hmm. that to do full-time church planting. And a, a preface to that story that I don't usually tell is that I went to seminary before I became a community organizer, mm. but I didn't pursue, um, I didn't pursue congregational or pastoral ministry because I literally didn't see a place for myself in the church that would recognize the leadership I was called to until I started, I stumbled upon a church plant and was like, Oh, you can just make this up. You can just start from nothing. <laughs> right. And like, I think it sounds very difficult to start from nothing. But for me, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so much easier than like pretending totally. to be something I'm not. And then convincing you that I should be who I am. And then shifting the systems to accommodate that. So, so yeah, I mean, like I was, I, I found ways to lead the church as a community organizer. I never want to downplay the many um, non-clergy, non-directly pastoral ways that like so many people serve the church and the body. But I did, I missed out on many years of a different kind of leadership because no one, not even me, could see a place for myself to Mm -hmm. lead. Now, the thing that I, I do talk more openly about and joke about is that when I said that I wanted to do this, when I decided I wanted to to follow this call and I saw a path to do so, um, some people were like, oh, so you're going to go start a queer church? 
and and like and sometimes because they knew that I was a community organizer they'd be like oh you're gonna start a justice church and my answer would always be like no I'm gonna start a Jesus church and any Jesus church worth its salt will be queer as hell and committed to justice at every level because obviously (laughs) (laughs) but but what I found fascinating is that like there is this assumption that if you were a queer person, you are leading other queer people. And that's sort of where the sentence ends, um, that, that you lead out of your queerness for queer people, and therefore no one who is not queer is called to, to be a part of what you're building or leading. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Which oh, is bananas. Absolutely. And the more intersecting identities we have on top of that, I'm a trans person too, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like, and... So the, if I talk too much about my transness, will even queer cis people be like, well, this isn't for me, right? Right. right. Um, and I imagine, you know, I get away, I get tremendous leeway with that as a white person. Um, but again, those kind of branches of who is allowed to lead whom really, yes. really feel limiting. Yeah. And I, th- and I think, I mean, uh, yeah, so I totally agree with what you're saying. The, um, the experience of... Um, a couple of years ago, hearing someone say, well, New City Church is a nice niche church, but Ooh. what are we going to do? When are we going to start planting, you know, churches? <laughs> it's like, Yikes. Let's, let's, just, let's just pause real quick there. Like, uh, why is it a niche church if it is like young people of color who statistically will actually be the majority <laughs> of our country in a matter of decades like I I just think that like who gets to be considered niche and who gets to be considered normal is mainstream huge yeah absolutely and I think that there's so many stories to I mean to loop back to the bible there's so many stories within the bible that absolutely busts down those understandings and and there's so many like surprises to who gets to be in the family and who gets to receive hospitality and who gets to be part of the the kingdom of god and um and i think that jesus um it's interesting because we're almost like anti-nuclear family with capitalism and and everyone being super transient and super distant from each other but it's like i think that jesus was really struggling against the tribal and familial structures of normativity that were in his time. And that influenced a lot of the imagery that he chose for his ministry. So yeah, strong agree uh, that a Jesus church necessarily will be able to center marginalized voices and, and centering marginalized voices necessarily means that you're hella queer. Absolutely. And, and I think that like understanding too, you know, you and I've talked about this and about, um, you know, having, for instance, POC-led church spaces mm-hmm. engaging racial justice. And actually, contrary to the mythology about it um, within the church structures, that like that would only be for people of color, mm-hmm. you feeling like inundated actually with white folks who want to follow to the point where you're worried about oversaturation, right? Yes. So yes. the people pursuing the gospel are actually saying, no, I want, I want so badly to be led... Right. to the margins that that in some ways it's crowding out the margins absolutely well and this is the, that is a really interesting thing and we see this in a lot of multi-ethnic churches like 
it's in its nascent forms, it becomes like robustly multi-ethnic. And then once word gets out among the white community and there's a critical mass of white people in the room for white people to feel safe, then all of a sudden it like, you know, like balloons up, especially frankly, when you're playing a numbers game in Minnesota where like, just statistically, there's a lot of white people here. There's just a lot of them around. <laughs> there's just a lot of them around and they got to go to church somewhere. And so it does present a, a really fascinating church, um, a, a potential pitfall of multi-ethnic church planting. And I think that COVID has actually taught us a lot in how to engage in community in a way that can kind of circumvent some of those issues because New City Church is putting out an online worship service where basically 100% of the people that you see on the screen are queer people of color. But mm. 100% of the audience isn't, <laughs> isn't a white, or I should say congregation, not audience. 100% of the congregation is not queer people of color, but the experience can still feel safe for people of queer people of color in the congregation because they're engaging directly with with the service and that I think that's the fear it's I'm not worried about like too many white people coming to church because I uh, am worried that too many white people will discover the liberating love of Jesus like I actually (laughs) would love for that to happen yes please it's just more about like how do we prioritize the experience of the people who have the most marginalized identities in the room because those are the folks who have to take it the most risks to be in that space yeah so if I can like cut back on the risks by trying to balance the room differently then I will but being online does create like different considerations for safety in that and um and in some ways it's been it's been a great gift we've had uh many people of color join us across the country frankly who like um, maybe wouldn't have even felt comfortable walking up to a church building, but they're able to join us online because of that format. So yeah, lots of, lots of very interesting ministry questions we're all facing. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, that question of like, who's, who has to take risks in order to be somewhere, mm-hmm. um, that's so central to, to the gospels and to the teachings mm-hmm. of Jesus is the risk, mm-hmm. the risk involved, um, what the people of God are doing to mitigate those risks for one another, um, how to, how the, the structures of the church or religious hierarchy are actually making those risks worse or more painful or more expensive, um, you know, at every level and, and the indictment in that. And I, I think for me, it, it goes back to what you were saying about what, how, how much scripture has to say, about the foreigner mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that like scripture seems to be written for people who are not actually comfortable mm-hmm. um <laughs> right where they are and and right. and i think you know it's so interesting because there are so many commands about how to treat the foreigner or a word that i don't love but i'll, I'll use here because it's one of the translations that we've had is like the alien right 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 right, right. Uh, how do you treat the alien and then right. there's the frame of the resident aliens that we are all like as Christians, we are here, mm. but from somewhere else and headed somewhere else mm. um, that we belong mm. to this world in so far as we are, we are born into it and part of this and our, our true citizenship 
is held somewhere else. And I wonder if that's an experience that, um, that only mm-hmm. folks with marginalized identities can understand mm-hmm. at that gut level. Um, and luckily, we all have some form of marginalized identity. I mean, it's not luckily, right. lucky that it's marginalized, but we do all have some of that outsider status. And yeah. so I wonder, yeah. you know, in your experience as a Chinese American, like, do you think that there are aspects of that, that call to recognize oneself as a resident alien that you understand differently or uniquely because of who you are? Mm, yeah, very interesting. And, and just before I jump into that, I, I really want to underscore every everybody has a, a some element of marginalization, least of which because if they remain alive, everybody's going to eventually age and become disabled in some way, like almost inevitably, yeah. right? Yep. So like <laughs> packed within our body is the capacity to access these, but like it's the least, our uh, marginalization is people's like most uncomfortable hermeneutic because they have to reckon with how they themselves have been <laughs> shut out from society. And that's extremely painful. So, um, but accessing it is the hermeneutic key for us to be able to understand the Bible. Um, as far as resident alien go, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, I, I know that New City Church is doing a sermon series on the book of Revelation right now, which is so amazing, by the way. Like, it's never in the lectionary, which is kind of like the set schedule that people are, quote unquote, supposed to preach on in the main line. It's never, it's only the like most boring parts are in the lectionary. (laughs) But like, Revelation has so many rich images. And I think um, it's interesting because a lot of times conservative evangelicals use Revelation as kind of like a, an imagination for what hell is going to be like. And like, the end times and and why everyone needs to get the mark of Jesus on them so that they can go to heaven. Like it's kind of this like left behind purity test thing. But when we read through, um, gosh, Revelation four and five, the image of the throne and then people from all nations, like an innumerable crowd of people from all over the place uh, worshiping Jesus. Like that's when I that's when my ears perk up as a Chinese American, because it's like most of the time when people uh, are creating spaces and creating racialized spaces in the Midwest, Asian people are just not even in the imagination of people that should be invited. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. it's a a default. It's a white space. If we want to diversify, that means we need black people. Oh, by the way, my neighbor speaks Spanish. So we should have Latinx people. And Asian Americans are just like, (laughs) let us know when you want dim sum or bubble tea or whatever and so like i i do think that there's power in descriptors in the bible when it's like people of all nations were there it's like oh thank god (laughs) because me too yeah like you're like oh that that means me like Mm -hmm. i i am so rarely explicitly named as a as a group of people to be invited to places so when I know that people from all groups of people are being invited, that's when I know, like, that's where I'll find a true home. And I think that that's why the, the power of this image of the throne surrounded by a rainbow, by the way, <laughs> is like so, they're so powerful. So gay. So gay. Yeah. <laughs> the scriptures, they're, they're so great. They're for us. 
And this is the thing that like, you know, and this is why I feel it's so important for us to continue to engage the scripture and to fall in love with it and to reclaim it is because it is for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it is a historical minority of people with an extraordinary amount of power who have, who have convinced all of the rest of us for generations that the Bible is for them or for us in service of them. Um, absolutely. And, and when I say they and them, I mean like this is a fictional, it's the, right. It's uh, the construction fictive norm, right? I think it's called in academic circles. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) I like that. Fictive norm might also be the name of our garage band. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) You know, I was watching, um, on Netflix, I'm, uh, watching his dark materials with my boyfriend, Brian, and that, which is like the golden compass thing, which I know is young adult literature, but it's really stressful times, everyone. I love it. Don't, (laughs) why, why are you even qualifying this? Young adult literature is amazing. I've read all those books and I am very much enjoying watching the show for sure. Absolutely. And I just think it's such, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting, um, storyline that, when the books first came out, a lot of conservative evangelicals banned Panicked. the Golden Compass series from oh, the yeah. church because it's like, this is so anti-God. This is so anti-church. Uh, if people read this, then they're going to be led astray. So you better read the Left Behind series, oh, no. which is an intentionally falsified reading of the Book of Revelation. Oh, gosh. Like, fascinating choices. choices. But as I'm watching it, I'm just aware of... Um, you know, in my book, I talk about the difference between Christendom and Christianity. Christianity mm. is like pursuing the gospel of liberating love, uh, the love of Jesus, being in community, justice, all that stuff. Christendom is the appropriation of Christian images and language for the purposes of the empire, because wow. the empire steals stuff. So yeah. like, I just think this, the golden compass is actually such an amazing representation of our world because it's showing for those of you who aren't familiar with the golden compass it's like there's something called the magisterium which is like the ultimate supreme human governing body and it's like the structure of the church like there it's like thought there are fathers they are in prayer they talk about penance sin is like a huge part of their discourse and uh, and they govern according to their the- their theocracy and I just think that's such a, an amazing representation, not of Christianity, but of Christendom, because yeah. it's in no way representing the gospel of Jesus, but it is appropriating all the images of Jesus. And that, I think, is actually more useful for Christians, because that's the thing that we always need to be on the lookout for, like always on the lookout for how people are misusing the name of Jesus for the purposes of something that Jesus didn't want. has something important to say about the conversation of cultural appropriation just in general about how you know because I think that like some of us get kind of twitchier on that conversation because we understand that all cultural contact all relationship is exchange and that sure. that's good you know that's the the beautiful part of that in the history of Christianity I think is 
what's sometimes called syncretism, which is the idea that like a culture and a narrative and another culture can combine together um, where you find, for instance, places around the world celebrating communion using different communion elements based on what's the most common food. Um, right. So, right, right, right. you know, it's bread and wine in many places, but in other places it's not, it's grains that are more common, um, rice right. or corn based, you know, that kind of thing. So that's syncretism. That's saying like, let's borrow, let's, let's infuse, let's give deeper, richer meaning to it. But cultural appropriation is when it's, it's the trappings of something completely hollow of its meaning and relationship and history leveraged for power or gain, um, by people who are, are not honoring, uh, what it is, where it comes from and not, uh, not benefiting the, the, the real legacy of, of the substance of something. Um, and it's so bizarre that followers of Jesus, we can, if we're not careful, we can appropriate our own stuff. We can appropriate yeah. Oh, yeah. from Jesus our own cultural history and, and rob it of its richness and challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really think um, the only antidote or like cure for that is to be accountable to marginalized communities, like who are physically in your community, like marginalized folks who are like in either your like zip code or your state or your country, <laughs> like listening to folks who are having to deal with the outcomes of our theological decisions. Like I'm convinced that, you know, as far as LGBTQ oppression goes, I'm convinced that there were some people who really didn't know the extent of the harm that they were causing queer people when they mm. preached anti-queer messages. Yeah. But like, you know, a, a round robin conversation with a couple of queer people in their community could have quickly like solved that and, and yeah. allowed uh, and invited that preacher to follow Jesus a little bit more informed. And um, I, I just think that it's so easy for us to, uh, to make idols and, and to, to love the idols more than we love Jesus. And that goes for any level of marginalized person. In my book, actually, there's a, um, Siobhan provides a testimony of, um, so Siobhan is a queer femme, black disabled poet who teaches poetry in prison. And she was just reflecting like, at the end of my workshop, I get to walk out of that prison and yeah. the people I was teaching don't. And even though I have like many dimensions of marginalization in my identity and like I need to practice allowing myself to be centered more and, and asserting myself into the center more, there is still like privilege uh, even within my identity that allows me to be able to walk out of that prison while other people don't, regardless of who my student, the identities of my students. And I thought that was so, it's, it's kind of like the other side of the coin of what you said. Like everyone has a, a bit of identity that, of marginalization and everyone has a bit of identity of privilege. And when we're talking about these like uh, community organizing spaces and centering marginalized voices, we're just talking about like what percentage of which <laughs> is present. Um, yeah. But it's, it's not like there's one um, gr ultimate group that has uh, uh the gold medal in the oppression olympics yeah and and that's fluid through time and experience mm -hmm. too right mm -hmm. or, like certainly space to space but also just like our own 
historical narrative playing out. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that, that example of someone being able to mm-hmm. bring all of her, does she use she, her yeah. mm-hmm. pronouns, um, bring all of her complicated identity, um, and its beauty and its contours into a space, um, aware of her own marginalization and then still aware that she gets to leave in a space other people don't. Um, I also, I don't think this has come up on the podcast, but, um, I, I was incarcerated myself. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the very strange experiences I had was being on the other end of that where like people who could come in to preach to us on Sundays or run a Mm -hmm. Bible study or whatever, I watched them leave and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And then also my sentence was relatively short and it was actually, I had an, an, an enormous amount of autonomy in that because I chose to participate in civil disobedience that I knew might result in my incarceration. So I even had choice in that, that my fellow inmates didn't. And then when I got to leave after a period of months and they would be there for years, you know, all of these things, like there is nuance to every one of our experiences of oppression and privilege. And I feel like sometimes when we talk about them exclusively in terms of identity, it feels fixed rather than an organic experience mm. of, of moving and shifting through a power mm-hmm. structure. Um, oh, and I yeah. think that the gospel invites us to orient ourselves to, like you said, to the margins and to the margins of our own experience for the purposes, not, uh, not of trying to claim that gold medal of oppression, but of, of creating a real lived sense of solidarity with mm. everyone else who is navigating that fluid, but continuous power structure. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And it really speaks to, um, you know, uh, we throw around the phrase collective liberation, no one is free until everyone's free. And I, and I really, um, I don't know, I, it makes sense to me why the book of Revelation has this image of all nations coming together before the throne. Because um, if, if there is going to be a measuring line, it's just like an impossible task to decide who gets to be the purified in and who gets to be the dirty. You know, like anytime I'm in social justice spaces, one of the things that I talk about in my book is um, the 1990s sexual purity culture thing, which is like, no masturbating, no uh, looking at people the wrong way, whatever. Um, if, if you have sex, you're a chewed up piece of gum. <laughs> and Ugh. comparing that to so- social justice purity culture, which is like this kind of fixed, rigid framework that often replicates dynamics of domination that say like, um, uh, only uh, the, the pure few who are the wokest of the woke get to determine what social justice means. And I yeah. think that the imagination of the kingdom of heaven, the imagination of God is one of collective liberation, meaning like all of us have a part in this. It's just, we have different parts depending on our identities, but that doesn't mean that um, only the wokest of the woke will get into woke heaven. <laughs> you mm. know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bearing all of that in mind, um, and and in particular kind of this this thread that we've been chasing around um, various 
lived experiences of marginalization and how that ought to lead our interpretation of scripture and our building of church. Cause you know, we've talked actually a lot about church leadership and church formation. Um, you wanted to talk today about the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Uh, mm-hmm. So can you, can you catch us up to speed on that story, why it's so important and how you see all of, all of what we've been talking about playing out in this, in this story that really brings a lot of identity um, into play with ch- early church leadership? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this is Acts 8, for those of you (laughs) who are curious about it. And um, I never heard a sermon preached on the Ethiopian eunuch. The folks who grew up in conservative evangelicalism at New City Church said that the sermon that they heard was that it was about how uh, it's uh, the, the power broker's responsibility to send missionaries out to the even to the like the quote-unquote savage lands right like that Mm. it was kind of like this like very colonized mindset but um here's a kind of i i rewrote a dramatic retelling of the ethiopian eunuch story in acts 8 in case you aren't familiar with it which by the way is one of my favorite things that you do and jumping back real quickly to the discussion of revelation um I, I didn't get to tune in for that whole series at New City, but I, I was able to hear a little snippet. And part of it was your creative retelling of, of a passage of Revelation with modern references. Um, oh, yeah. That was so fun and so cool. And I feel like I understood Revelation in a fundamentally different way because of your creative retelling. If people did want to go listen to that, how could people access your sermon series on Revelation from New City Church? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, go to our Facebook. So facebook.com slash grow new city. And then in our video archive, it's the Revelation Reclaimed sermon series and it's the second sermon in the series where i do the modern retelling of revelation or it's it's really it's more like a um i write a jewish apocalypse mm-hmm. using the imagery of of modern images so um yeah, yeah it, it was, it was, that was fun so fun and so illuminating i think and now that, that's part of the the thing that i'm drawn to is kind of the creative retelling of the story that captures more the heart of the story than a literal retelling can um so nice. for anybody interested nice. in checking that out, please do that. We'll put links in the description um, of this episode as well. But please um, take us away uh, in Acts 8, your retelling of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. So I title this, The Ethiopian Eunuch Gets It. Let's look at the Ethiopian eunuch story in the beginning of this chapter, um, because I put the Acts 8 in the beginning of the chapter. So let's just slow this down for a second. An Ethiopian, which is a dark-skinned foreigner from modern-day Africa, eunuch, a person whose genitals were surgically altered and and eunuchs were considered another gender, neither male nor female, came to Jerusalem, which is almost impossibly far away from Ethiopia, to worship God. An Ethiopian eunuch came to Jerusalem to worship God. An Ethiopian eunuch rode up in a chariot and strode their fine black self to the temple. The reader is tasked with filling in some blanks on their own from there. You see, in Deuteronomy 23, 1, there is a text that prohibits people like the eunuch from entering the temple. 
It reads, no man whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off can belong to the Lord's assembly. The rules in Deuteronomy governed what happened in the temple. So that means that the eunuch got shut out. The eunuch, after coming all this way, got shut out of the temple. And I imagine the crowds of people streaming into the temple with the eunuch stuck on the outside. I bet the eunuch could hear the singing inside and the crowd. I wonder if they cried some or if it was one of those moments when they refused to let people see them flinch. Either way, they got back into the chariot with that terrible weight on their chest and they started making the long trip back home. The spirit of God was apparently not pleased. All of a sudden, Philip, who just two chapters previous was nominated as a leader of the early Christian movement, gets a message from God that it's time to hit the road. Start walking down the desert road, Philip's hears God say. You know, the desert road, the, the dry one, the long dry one. Just, just keep, keep going down that road until further notice. And whether it was out of obedience or sheer curiosity, Philip took the next step and he started the walk across the desert. Eventually he came upon the chariot of the eunuch, which prompted his next divine instruction get up to the chariot and stay with it. Now let's think logistically for a second because the ch a chariot is pulled presumably by an animal and Philip is on foot. And so that means the spirit told Philip to run, run up to the chariot of the one whom the temple rejected. Pass through the dusty cloud of despair coming from that chariot and find the one that we've rejected run. And eventually the eunuch and Philip caught up and started talking about scripture. And I imagine this felt about as comfortable as it would if someone got into your car at a stoplight and started talking about God and a person of a different culture, no less. But Philip was convinced that if he listened and asked questions and passed on what he learned, it would serve the gospel that would set us all free. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit said, Finally, as she barged into the chariot, gathering her skirts as she sat right between the eunuch and Philip, she picked Philip's words out of the air and gave them wings, and she blessed the ears of the eunuch, and she followed the streams of the Ethiopian's tears and opened up a heart that until now was more used to closing itself off. She set the scripture on fire until its warmth and light blessed the deadest parts of the chariot's passengers. The eunuch found out something that they had wished for all along, that God's ways are different than society's ways, that they could hope again. And so the eunuch looked around and saw water and said, look, water, said the dark, the black-skinned sexual minority foreigner. What would keep me from being baptized? And what a blessing this eunuch is giving Philip. Philip, who was already starting his ministry career, had been in ministry with plenty of people and some of them were quite different from him, but an Ethiopian eunuch who wouldn't even be able to get into the temple was in front of him, asking to enter into God's community. And the eunuch didn't ask, can I get baptized? They asked, what would keep me from being baptized? Tell me, Philip, what reasons can you come up with that would be greater than God's love? And with that question, Philip nodded, and the two stepped out of the dusty chariot into the water. Across the shining stretch of desert, an oasis of water would be the new home for the eunuch and Philip. 
Glimmering in the sun, Philip gently baptized them, and the spirit erupted in symphony. So beautiful. Thank you for that, Tyler. So what, um, what does that story mean to you as you read it? Yeah, I, I mean, I just think it's striking that there is a dark-skinned sexual minority <laughs> in the Bible who plays like a pretty important part of a story that is just completely dismissed and ignored or yeah. commodified and, and, uh, and, and um, uh, colonized. <laughs> you know, like it's like, here's this character who probably went on to plant a church. Like they, yeah. they went to Ethiopia and they, would, they wouldn't have had a ton of other places to worship. And Philip didn't police that. Like Philip was like, I'm going to share what I got. We're going to baptize. And then you go and, and do what God wants you to do. Yeah. That's powerful. Well, and I think if we can um, trace the logic of that traditional colonialist, cringy interpretation, but actually read it from the perspective, not of Philip, but of, of the, the main character of this story, the Ethiopian mm -hmm. eunuch, there is, I see in that storytelling um, that the author is doing a, a narrative of, of the futility, uh, nah, futility mm. maybe is too strong, but like the the damage, the danger, the rejection associated with folks who have been structurally barred from the church, mm. um, try bearing the burden of 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 trying to fight their way in. Mm -hmm. That like mm -hmm. the eunuch is on their way out of town. Right. They, like they already came in to try and go. Uh, and now they're on their way out because they were rejected and that there mm. is a level of responsibility that Philip has to go chase after those who have been chased out mm. and to say, we, this was wrong. This was wrong. And, and not to put that burden on like, oh, yeah, we'll just open the doors now. You can't. <laughs> It's one of right. my biggest beefs with like, I, you know, it's very, it's beautiful in many ways, but one of the, the kind of taglines of our denomination is open hearts, open doors, open minds. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, come on in everyone who we've been, you know, checking at the gate. And it's totally. like, like, no, Philip has an, has a responsibility actually called by the spirit to run after, to say, we messed up and I will give you everything that you are asking for and more so that you are empowered and capable to lead in the way that you have clearly been called by God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's, it's such a, uh, inside out <laughs> ecclesiology. Like the church is the place on the side of the road where you run after the people that the church has harmed. Like that's, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And um, I think it's interesting. I was talking to, um, I, I had a, a proofreader of my book, um, Dr. Eric Barreto, who's at Princeton. He's a New Testament scholar who wrote his dissertation on Acts 8. Oh, wow. and, um, and I was just talking about like, this to me is like so wildly queer and interesting, but why didn't the text 
include like Deuteronomy, like the text doesn't include a citation to Deuteronomy to explain the Ethiopian getting kicked out, any of that stuff. It, we like really have to fill it in. And um, one of the things that I found in my reading is like, it would have been implied. Like the people who are receiving yeah. this text would have known the book of Deuteronomy yep. backwards and forwards and would have been like Ethiopian eunuch. Yep, I know how this is going to go. And yeah. so like, I, I just in terms of like the importance of reading through the whole Bible and like intertestamentally to be able to really see, because like if you just read the New Testament and never read the Old Testament, it wouldn't have been clear from just Acts 8 that the Ethiopian unit got shut out. But right. because like a whole Bible reading portrays a very different image that is very important for us to keep in mind as a church, right? So um, shout out to Old Testament scholars and shout out to like the people who are able to see this and and read it in such a way that knows that like the church must be running along the highways of rejected people. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that one of the ways that a lot of folks try and cope with um, the way that the Bible has been abusive uh, or, or has been used as a tool to abuse people is to say, well, I don't, I don't mess with the Hebrew scriptures. I, knew, I am a New Testament only kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll read, I'll read the gospels. I'll read the New Testament, but I don't, I don't truck with that, you know, old Testament mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. which I, you know, saw me the other day that was like, arguably at this point, both testaments are pretty old, right? Can we, <laughs> can we get on that page? They're both very, very, old. um, <laughs> but but the Hebrew scriptures, people want to just reject them and say like, yeah. you know, because they've been so frequently weaponized, but actually the the power, the depth, the beauty of the storytelling, mm-hmm. even within just the New Testament is is robbed of its meaning in a lot of ways, including this one, um, this one particular, very specific mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. If we eliminate or ignore or pretend away Deuteronomy, which has beauty and pain in it, Right. Um, right. Deuteronomy, which also contains um, the, the passages, many, many amazing passages about um, the foreigner and also yes. uh, about love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, Jesus's entire hermeneutic plus, you know, love your neighbor as yourself comes from Deuteronomy. And so, you know, the whole Bible is this mishmash uh, again, of power and privilege. And one of the things that fascinates me about the Ethiopian eunuch is that the scripture does point out that in, you know, in addition to all of these identities that are beautiful mm-hmm. and different than the, the power structures would want, they are also, um, the CEB translates it as an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Yeah. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. So, this is somebody who has the resources to just get in a chariot mm-hmm, and go. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. even this, this Ethiopian eunuch has privileges that, that they leverage. and use. Absolutely. And so no one gets to be narrowed so, so, so harshly that they cease to be human. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really important to observe like there were people who jesus whom jesus ministered with who were much poorer than the ethiopian eunuch right and so like 
looking at that intersection is important. I also like to point out that observation because did you know that the Bible has black royalty? Because here's Candace, like it's naming it, like black female royalty. So yeah, I think I think that really reading into each of those characters and the social location of each of those characters is only possible by being in community with people who have different variations of, of social privilege and marginalization. Um, and yeah. we do, we, we want to be so reductionist about it in the States yeah. um, and in the American church. And, and binary, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, where, you know, you, you referenced like all the people that Jesus ministered to and with had, had, were at a, a very different economic place. We're, we're deeply oppressed by the economic system in a way that this Ethiopian eunuch was not. And also they, for the most part, had access to the temple. And right. <laughs> right. The Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch was turned away. So right. um, the, the richness there that we lose when we just like condense it into an eight minute sermon about how you should probably take that mission trip to Africa, um, <laughs> which like at best, that's probably the only way most of us have heard this text preached. Right. right. Um, yeah. It's, it's so much richer than that. Um, Tyler, thank you so much for, for this whole conversation. Before we leave, I just want to ask you um, two closing questions. First of all, um, what in the in the canon of scripture, is there any story or um, character or passage that that you feel doesn't get enough airtime in the in the overall discussion of of the weight of of the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um I- I have many answers to this, but just because it didn't come up earlier in the in the interview, um, the Earth, like <laughs> the Earth mm. itself, has yeah. such a powerful role in so many stories, and uh, and it's just kind of seen as wallpaper. But like, I I think that the biblical imagination is much more. Uh, as any agrarian society would understand, like much more interactive, much more understanding that God moves through the earth and, uh, and that we rely on the earth and that sin impacts the earth. Like, I just think that the role of creation is majorly underplayed in the Western interpretation of Bible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometime maybe I'll have you back to talk specifically about that. I think that would be a really rich conversation. Well, and then the kind of flip cynical side of that, uh, is there any part of the Bible, a character, a passage, a, um, a narrative that you feel like gets way too much play in our kind of modern American Christian tellings of scripture? Undue influence, if I, you will. I, um, okay, so I'm going to say this with a bunch of foot or like apostrophes, or like footnotes here. Um, I think King David... has like some major masculinity stuff that like we need to be a little bit more critical of that like because he was he's a man after god's own heart yeah and because he like successfully murdered a bunch of people like you gotta like you know like i geopolitically i understand why david is shown in a, a very positive light in some of the old testamental texts but his uh uh certainly the rape of Bathsheba and his relationship yeah. with emotions and like all of these things. I just, I just feel like 
it, I, you know, because as a church planter, I peruse like what sermon series other churches are doing to kind of get yeah. ideas for myself. And so many people love to latch on uh, David as kind of like the hardcore king who was like mm. in it for the Lord and dance for the Lord, but also fought battles. And we need to fight battles in our life. Like there's, it, it, there's kind of this like, he's like the Chuck Norris of the Old Testament. <laughs> and I just feel like there's... Uh, there is no character in the Old Testament who's supposed to be representative of the perfective ideal person. Yeah. And uh, and I think that the biblical authors intentionally included David's flaws yeah. to demonstrate that like even folks who are super wrapped up in toxic masculinity need to, <laughs> God could still move through them, right? Um, and And they also have work to do. So- but that has in our retelling so often been claimed as virtue rather than Oh, totally. Flaw. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I wonder, maybe maybe we need to put David on the shelf for a little while anyway, but are there ways to queer and decolonize those readings? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, David and Jonathan, for instance. <clears throat> the gay again, is part of the whole thing. <laughs> the whole Bible is gay. We don't even have to be like looking for these things. We just stumble upon them. And then all of a sudden we're naked and hugging and kissing each other because we're such good friends, according to every white male Christian evangelical. They just have an apartment together. (laughs) Yeah. They're just roommates, guys. Come on. Roommates for 15 years. Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much, there's so much there. Like David says, I love you more than I've loved a woman. And yeah. I think that that's valuable and powerful. And also I think the fact that David like was trapped in this like patrilineal society meant that like part of the rape of Bathsheba is related to closetedness. So yeah. now we're just, re- we're, now we're just using modern terms into ancient characters, but I, I think that there's a lot there. Yeah. <sighs> All right, cool. Well, someday we'll, we'll talk about that too. So <laughs> Thank you, Tyler, so much. Um, Everybody be on the lookout for Tyler's work with the Liberation Project, which we didn't even really get to talk about. Um, But you do a lot of design work and um, visual representations of some of these concepts, invitation to think about doing ministry differently and and through a liberationist lens. And then, of course, the book coming out in April 2021, um, Staying Awake. Um, remind me that subtitle again. Um, staying awake, the gospel for change makers, and folks can go to tylersit.com to uh, get on that li- on the mailing list to get updates about that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. God bless everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.